Hello and welcome to this ninth episode of The Crypt, newly liberated from some of the strictures of the UK's lockdown. My name is Ollie Stratford. And my name is Christina Rabatsky, and we're your hosts. Have you been to the pub yet? No, I haven't been to the pub. All of the pubs around me are completely booked up for weeks. Everyone is going to try and drink as much lager or ale or white wine as possible, so there's there's no room. Just those three things? That's the only thing they do. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> Gin and tonics on Saturday. <laughs> Have you been? No, no. Same, same here. Same everywhere. Can't get a booking anywhere, and um, I don't know, I've become so used to just buying a tin of lager and sitting in the park and drinking <laughs> that uh that seems fine especially now it's starting to get a little bit warmer again yeah i'm very used to cans at home sort of sat in my living room late into the night in the dark <laughs> just just drink, just for something to do really i mean it's it's been a mm. it's been a fairly depressing period so um the chance for a little bit more freedom i think is is quite welcome the other things that have opened in the UK are gyms and non-essential shops. So um, those are two other things you can do. You can go and exercise communally with other people and you can go out and shop yourself silly. Museums yet to open. That's coming soon, though. That's been controversial, though, hasn't it? That the non-essential retails open before the museums. And I kind of agree that's that's a bit of a downer. If you're able to go into Primark, you should be able to go into uh, a museum and look at some art. Exactly. If you can go to the Gap, why can't you see the Parthenon marbles? Well, there are other reasons why you shouldn't be looking at the Parthenon marbles in the British Museum, but that's a whole other story. So the first story this week was a little bit hard to avoid, at least if you're based in the UK, as uh, the crit is. Christina, did you know that Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, has died? Yeah, I uh, I did pick pick that up from um, various news outlets. Um, I actually cycled this weekend, cycled into Piccadilly Circus. Uh, you know, it's kind of the Times Square of London where they have all the advertising on big LED screens. And there was the largest picture of a human being I think I've ever seen in my life. It's just Prince Philip's face. It was like 20 times as big as a normal human head uh, looking down on uh, passersby. It was quite uncanny. Well, it was an extraordinary response from the UK media to the death of Prince Philip, who... I suppose he's been a big part of the nation's life for a long time. He was 99 when he died, but the coverage was more or less wall-to-wall. I think all of the BBC channels cancelled their regular programming in favour of tributes to Prince Philip as frantic royal correspondents increasingly searched around for something, anything new to say about this man. One of the more unusual tributes I wanted to talk about came from Network Rail and National Rail websites, which, in in, in deference to the great man, converted all of their websites to grayscale. Turning a website grayscale is not great in terms of accessibility for people with uh, visual impairments. So uh, it actually makes it sort of impossible to read, really. Now, that's not necessarily a problem, providing that the contrast is high between those tones of grey. It can still be legible for people with uh, visual impairments. But the problem is, if you're not familiar with that site and it's been set up such that colour normally guides you, then that's really difficult because many of the buttons you would click on are typically shown by very bright colours, for instance. So if you want to book a ticket, there's a really bright 
very contrasty button you go on and so you know that immediately. Yeah, what you just said there about uh, bright colours kind of helping you navigate the site applies to people who aren't visually impaired as well. It's the sort of core principle of user experience design that you uh, use colour as a way of helping people navigate a website. So it's a bad idea for everyone. Which is a very curious uh, tribute to Prince Philip to disable the nation he represented's rail system for people. I think Network Rail anyway has turned their website back to its normal look. I don't know about National Rail. I think they both have now. I think they've had to admit okay. it was it was a disastrous attempt to be respectful. But it is interesting to see uh, web design and sort of user experience design get sucked into all of the debates that have been swirling around uh, following Prince Philip's death as to how public institutions should display deference and respect. I think part of this is tying into wider debates around how BBC television should be presented, how the sets that appear on BBC should be designed and put forward. So the UK government has been very critical recently of the BBC over a lack of patriotism, which seems to be entirely manifest as the BBC not displaying the Union flag prominently or frequently enough in its programming. There was an incident a couple of weeks ago as well where a BBC presenter, Naga Manchetti, sniggered at the um, excessive display of Union Jack flags in the background of a, of a British MP's Zoom interview. I mean, just with the displays of patriotism, I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago the new Downing Street press room was, was unveiled, a new piece of interior design for the screen. I did. It looks incredibly dreary. It looks like a function room at a Premier Inn or something. With Again, with very big flags. Yeah. Yeah. There do seem to be some increasing design issues around nationalism and patriotism, and particularly in that realm of television and the ways in which public institutions and governmental bodies are displayed, a, a visual language developing around this arms race of flags. <laughs> Et New Institute has a new artistic director. They do. So Et New Institute is a Dutch organisation based in Rotterdam, which looks after architecture, design and digital culture. And it's been quite progressive since its foundation in 2013, with a lot of critical research and innovative programming around those areas. It was sort of a merger between some existing institutes, wasn't it? It was the Netherlands Architecture Institute, Premsella and Virtuel platform. Right. And it's been led artistically by Gus Boimer, um, but he's retiring in May and the new artistic director is Arik Chen. New man in the hot seat. Yeah. So for those who don't know Arik Chen, he's a really prominent figure within design and architecture, has worked as a critic, a writer, an educator, a curator. He was the um, he was the first director for Beijing Design Week, I think. He was yes, back in the early 2010s, and then he joined M Plus, which was then and still is in development. It's just about to open later this year, which is the the museum in Hong Kong, which is a much anticipated collection of art and design, which I think seeks to rival the likes of 
MoMA and the V&A and in in the scope of its collections. Yeah, and Eric was very influential there in assembling the museum's design and architecture team, its its programming and also building the permanent collection. He's actually left that institution. I think he left in maybe 2019. And recently, he's been the curatorial director of Design Miami. It's a very exciting appointment. Uh, I think he will start one day a week quite soon, but then in the autumn, uh, so in September, he's going to start full time and we will get more of a sense of what his plans are for at New Institute. He also feels perhaps quite an, quite an interesting international appointment. I think at New Institute's done some amazing work and they, they take a lot of people from Design Academy Eindhoven and quite forward-thinking, critical design students go there and do excellent work too. But it maybe doesn't have the public profile outside of the Netherlands that it perhaps deserves. So maybe bringing in someone like Eric, who's done an awful lot of work in the US, who's done an awful lot of work in China, could be useful in bringing it to new audiences and giving it a little bit of a broader scope. Our next story takes a look at architecture in London, and this is the news that Anti-Pavilion, uh, a pavilion programme that's been run in East London since 2017, has selected its new winning designs for 2021. But the story isn't quite as straightforward as that, is it, Christina? Yes, you could argue it should be seen less as an architectural pavilion and more as an act of open warfare with the local council. I don't think that's an exaggeration, really. Open warfare is not an exaggeration. <laughs> no, 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 I, I agree. It is actually. It's um, So Anti-Pavilion is a very interesting uh, programme because every year they put up a, a new pavilion structure in Hoxton. But the thing which is interesting about it is that they never have planning permission. Yes. Uh, and since I think 2019, they've been embroiled in this legal battle with the local council, which is Hackney Council. Hackney Council wants to take down its previous pavilion structures and anti-pavilion doesn't want to do that. Increasingly, the briefs for each pavilion have been formulated in such a way that uh, contestants are encouraged to engage with the nature of the legal battle. Yeah, so the programme is run by a property company called Shiva, used to be in conjunction with the Architecture Foundation as well. And the idea is that these pavilions are supposed to expose, challenge and reveal some of the hypocrisies of planning procedures in London. So the way in which planning, for instance, is rather ineffectual when it comes to big-time developers who want to set up an 80-storey skyscraper, perhaps, but then come down very, very hard on small-scale community initiatives. Yeah, so the winner of 2020's edition of the Anti-Pavilion was Jamie Shorten, who responded by uh, installing, you know obviously, a number of sharks in the, <laughs> in the Regent's Canal. I should, I should specify, Jamie, he's not, he's not like some sort of weirdo. There was a reason for the sharks, which is they reference the Headington shark, which was a fibreglass sculpture of a shark smashing through a, a terrace roof in Oxford. And it became this lightning rod for debates over planning permission, basically. Precisely. So that was one example. And now for the 2021 edition, the brief was to create a bot. Bartison? Do you know what a Bartison is? I do, but 
I mean, only because I looked it up in advance of this. I wouldn't have known otherwise, no. It's a turret, but one that kind of grows out of the side of a building, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's an ad hoc turret. That's what they've wanted, and that's what they've that's what they've gotten. They've they've selected two winners. They have, and the first one is Studio Nima Sada, who's the overall winner, who created a project called Antichamber, which is a sort of camera obscura, which can be mounted on a building. And then they also have a special winner, which is Project Bunny Rabbit's uh, bamboo structure called All Along the Watchtower. I think the latter's going to be temporary. They're going to install it earlier in the summer and then the camera obscura structure is going to be installed a little bit later and hopefully, but you never know with the anti-pavilion, be up for, for a bit longer. Yeah, and the idea why they've picked this Bartizan is because they're embroiled in this running battle with the council, they're, they're still dealing with the shark issue. There is an expectation that these new pavilions, which also lack planning permission, might have to be moved at a moment's notice. So they've asked people to create these Bartizans, which can be uh, dismounted, moved around, set up elsewhere. I think the camera obscura is a really nice design. It looks it looks like an overturned Victorian camera with its uh, you know sort of bellows, concertina bellows, and the idea is you can go into it and it has a little pinhole at the top of it, which will then project the outside into the into the structure. And so it's a fully functioning camera obscura, but it's also collapsible and can be taken down uh, at a moment's notice. It's also it uses reclaimed timber from one of the other structures, the Potemkin Theatre, which was the 2019 winner. Yeah, I think the Anti-Pavilion is a really interesting programme because you do get these pavilion uh, programmes every year in cities around the world. Obviously, the Serpentine Pavilion is the big one in London. And they can... They can sometimes end up feeling rather hollow. They can feel like just a structure has been put up for the sake of it, and it doesn't have much to say. Whereas something that's very nice about these temporary anti-pavilions is that they are designed to say something about architecture. They are designed to probe that planning system and actually offer a bit of a reflection on the way in which cities build and maybe some problems with the ways in which cities build. There's a very useful segment on the organization's webpage which is dedicated entirely to the Hackney fight. It's called Hackney fight. And you can read all the documents, all the letters and so on with the council. And they also have segments with other organizations that they're angry with, including the Canal and River Trust (laughs) Uh, and the Guardian. They just want to fight everyone. I hope they don't want to fight us after this. So in episode six of The Crit, we talked about the VNA, the uh, redundancies there and the concurrent restructuring of its curatorial departments that was put on the table. Uh, there's some updates. Yeah, so originally the VNA was going to move from a materials-based curatorial strategy with uh, departments organised around mediums, so furniture, textiles and fashion, sculpture, metalwork and so on. It's how it's been organised for ages. Yeah. yeah, the plan was going to be to convert that into four huge departments, three of which would be devoted to Europe and the Americas, which would be arranged chronologically, and then a fourth which was to cover Africa, the African diaspora and Asia. 
So when these plans were revealed, there was a huge backlash from all sorts of <laughs> directions, really. Uh, it was on Twitter, it was in the national newspapers, there were letters in the Times. Uh, it was a very interesting piece in the London Review of Books. And now the VNA has announced that it's going to backpedal not on the idea of restructuring because they will still have to for financial reasons but they are going to stick with the materials-led approach rather than this chronological display and what, what were people's criticisms ollie just maybe as a recap yeah well i think i think a lot of the issues with it focused on the idea that this was a regressive and backwards move which arguably fed into some difficult colonialist histories in museological display which have felt particularly sensitively around the V&A because of course it's a Victorian institute it was sort of set up under the aegis of colonialism it was this separation of the Asia department and Africa department off from that chronology so the main criticism was that you end up with a West and a rest display and also that that rest was being treated as a sort of a temporal lump, yeah. <laughs> which which doesn't fit into uh, wider chronology. So that was the general uh, issue with it, I think. So we'll see what happens next. Like we say, there's still going to be a restructuring of the curatorial departments. Yeah, I don't. In a sense, I don't know whether this is good or bad news because, on the one hand, I think the criticisms which were lodged against that restructuring are good ones and things that should be taken seriously. But also, this decision to perform a U-turn it slightly smacks of an institution in crisis almost it might almost be better to to have stuck with what they'd said they were going to do and which they said they had a cohesive plan for but try to factor Mm. in those criticisms and adapt it i don't know what the new plan is i don't believe they've announced that yet but it's difficult to know whether this is positive or negative in a way So one of the news stories that caught my eye this fortnight was the news that Microsoft is buying the artificial intelligence and speech technology firm Nuance Communications for around $16 billion. So this is the second largest acquisition Microsoft has ever made after LinkedIn. I'd never heard of Nuance, but it's a pretty... (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) (laughs) But apparently it's pretty significant. It's one of those news stories where you realise that actually the world is kind of run by companies whose names you've never heard of. All the public facing ones are important, but the (laughs) the ones that really kind of uh, matter are usually a bit more hidden from public scrutiny anyway. Yeah. So Nuance worked a lot with speech technology and they were a big player when Apple launched Siri. So Siri, at least initially, I don't know now, was based on Nuance's Dragon software, which uses deep learning to transcribe speech and improve accuracy over time. I think Apple has since shifted to an in-house development team for Siri's technology, but Nuance was key in the early versions. Right, and since then, Nuance has come to specialise in healthcare and provide that kind of uh, speech technology within that setting. Yeah, I didn't realise that speech recognition technology was such a big thing in the healthcare sector, but apparently almost 80% of hospitals in the United States anyway are Nuance customers and have some form of its technology in their hospitals, whether that's kind of doing medical transcriptions or other forms of uh, AI 
aided work. Yeah, and as working journalists, we can assure you that transcription takes a very long time. It's very time consuming. It's very difficult. So there is this sort of holy grail almost of is there a software that could be developed which does it automatically, but does it accurately? So like you say, this is a huge investment for Microsoft and signifies, I suppose, a shift where that company has a foot in or or two feet in, or I don't know, they're all in the uh, healthcare sector. Yeah, they seem to be expanding really rapidly at the moment. So apparently Microsoft ended 2020 with $132 billion in cash. The pandemic has been all right for some. And they've been launching loads of acquisitions. So they've been looking at video games as well, for instance. I think they've also, they were in talks to buy TikTok. That never happened. But they've also been in talks to buy Discord, which is another gaming platform. Mm. And then healthcare. Healthcare's the the new big thing. Do you think that's going to feed into these uh, zany conspiracy theories about (laughs) Bill Gates microchipping everyone with a vaccine? (laughs) This idea that Microsoft is now involved in uh, kind of listening and transcribing your medical records. Yeah, so he knows when you're weakest. (laughs) He has it all automatically (laughs) written down. Uh, we should say that there is absolutely no uh, no support for the theory that Bill Gates is microchipping people through COVID-19 vaccines. But I think the design world should pay attention because healthcare does seem to be a growing frontier for digital design. So, for instance, Apple has been doing a lot of investigation into wearables, for instance, and how they can integrate healthcare more into their platforms and looking at that. So... It does seem to be of growing consideration. And I guess what we'll see is is something of an arms race amongst these big tech platforms buying up the technology which would maybe let them get an edge. What are you humming there, Ollie? Contemporary architecture at Hogwarts. It's the Harry Potter theme tune. It's a rousing tune, isn't it? It's um, a, a rousing thing from the hit film and book series, Harry Potter. Uh, you changed some of the words there. Yeah. I, I, Sorry, you'd, you'd included words. I don't think it has any words. Uh, yeah, originally. Or, originally, famously, the Harry Potter theme doesn't have lyrics. <laughs> but I've uh, I've put some in. And the reason being that there's a new there's a new series of Harry Potter books coming out. Well, a new series of cover designs, I should say. Whoa, you just had almost had all of our listeners falling off their chairs. <laughs> yeah, there's a new series covering Harry Potter's disappointing middle age. Uh, <laughs> I'd read that. He just can't live up to the highs of his youth. <laughs> Uh, no, it's um, it's quite an exciting development, this, I suppose, because it's a leading designer and architect who's behind it. So Michele De Lucchi, um, oh, yeah. a really prominent, great uh, Italian designer, part of the Memphis group, for instance, has had huge influence on the field. He's done a series of designs for new covers for the series. Oh, so some uh, kind of some cover art. He has, yeah. I'm going to send you a link to it now so you can have a look. And uh, maybe you can describe what you're seeing. Okay. Let's have a look. Right, so it looks like it's an Italian edition because uh, the first cover I'm looking at is E la pietra filosofale, which I guess is the Philosopher's Stone, the first book in the series, which has two characters, I think maybe Harry and Hagrid, looking at Hogwarts, perhaps? It's Hogwarts, Jim, but not as we know it. It's Hogwarts not as a kind of gothic castle, but more as um, 
mashup of the Shard and, uh, you know, that famous expressionist church in Reykjavik. A lot of sharp upward thrust. It is. So that's the general idea behind the whole series. Each book is illustrated with a building from Harry Potter. So uh, Michaela has moved the focus away from the characters and the plot and more onto the architecture of the wizarding world. But all of the architecture has been imagined to have a more contemporary expression. So whereas Hogwarts in the book and films is this sort of quite rambling, crumbling, mouldering old British castle, here it's this more crystalline, thrusting uh, expression of the power of architecture, I suppose. I, I think it's it's interesting because the fantasy genre definitely has an architectural language that is, you know, medievalizing and gothic. So this is really interesting. I'm going to scroll down to the next one. Oh, it's the Chamber of Secrets. I think that is... What's that? It's a timber structure on, on the cover. What's that meant to be? We're looking at the burrow, the abode of the Weasley family. Oh, yes, of course. So this famously is a sort of very ramshackle, tall structure, which bits and pieces have been added onto over the years by uh, it's, it's magic. It's held together by magic. It's entirely held together by magic. It would collapse otherwise. Um, it's also, I should describe it as a tall timber structure with a mansard roof, and then it's like got a timber pediment on top of that mansard roof. Windows are a bit wonky, but I don't think it's nearly ramshackle enough. Yeah, I mean, I think something which is quite interesting about this whole series is Michaela has actually based all of the buildings from Harry Potter on his own designs. So they all reference a structure that he's made. Now, I guess it is fun to see these very familiar structures because Harry Potter is such a big part of pop culture executed in a different way. But it's also kind of weird because, for instance, Azkaban, the wizarding prison, is meant to be the worst place in the world where there's no happiness. I'm looking at it now. He's based it on a hotel he's designed in Georgia. And that's really <laughs> oh. strange to say, what's the worst place in the world? Oh, well, that hotel I made in Georgia. <laughs> that could <laughs> no. be a very good model for this. This is the kind of ziggurat. Uh, structure in the sea, isn't it? It is, and it it actually looks quite good. Oh, it's quite nice. But there is something very odd about this series being so self-reflective. Yeah, I think it depends on how it's presented as well, because if it's about just making people aware of contemporary architecture, that's one thing, but if it's actually about making people aware of Michaela De Lucchi's specific projects, that's (laughs) something else. And Harry Potter has a little bit of a history of this because it's been so successful. There are so many different editions all meant to cater to a different audience. So I don't know if you remember when they put out those adult (laughs) editions. Adult edition sounds like it was pornographic. Like fan fiction. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, For those who really ship Ron and Hermione. (laughs) Yeah, they would put out editions that were designed for people who wanted to read Harry Potter but didn't want to look like they were reading Harry Potter. Right, right, right. Do these ones do that as well? Maybe a little bit. The more I I look at them, I'm now looking at the... um... Il Principe Mezzo... Oh, the Half-Blood Prince, sorry. Uh, I think it's meant to be the astronomy tower in Hogwarts, but it's also that that is very clearly a pavilion that he does that Michele De Lucchi designed in 2016. I recognise that. Similarly, the final book uh, has a bridge uh, on it, which is just exactly the it's lattice. Tbilisi Bridge of Peace. Tbilisi Bridge, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah, so he's very much introduced himself into this world. I mean, for some people it will really work and there's nothing wrong with having other editions. But part of me does think, just read the children's books, you cowards. <laughs> read, read the original covers. Yeah, own it. Own your Harry Potter fandom. Well, I think that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. But if that hasn't fully scratched your itch for design content, we have another new podcast coming out. It's called Words on Wood. It's all about timber, forestry, and how those things relate to design and architecture. So this is a project we've been working on for the last year or so with the American Hardwood Export Council. And the idea is it's a deep dive into forests and some of the issues swirling around those, be it scientific, ethical, architecture or design, with interviews from experts in the field. So do check that out. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. In the interim, you can stay in touch with us here by sending us an email on thecrit at deseniamagazine.com or get in touch on at the crit podcast for Instagram and at the crit design for Twitter. See you in a few weeks' time. This episode of The Crit was produced by Ellie Hall and edited by Christina Rapatsky. Our jingle is by Yuri Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagram. Pentagram.